This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Dan Ellsworth is a consultant and writer living in Charlottesville, Virginia. He also does online faith crisis ministry for Latter-day Saints and writes on faith topics for Public Square magazine. Welcome to the Still Rowing podcast. I am your host, Tara McCausland, and welcome back, Dan. Great to have you back with us. Yeah, nice to be back. Thanks, Tara. You know, it was back in 2019 that I had Dan on, and he was actually one of my earlier guests. Um, so I appreciate what you've brought to the world in the last three years. I've been following you <laughs> online and Dan, he has a, a deep, mature faith, but also if for our listeners, if you have not listened to episode nine, which was Dan's original episode, it was titled emerging from a faith crisis with greater faith. I suggest that you go back, you listen to that. And I think that a lot of what he'll share today, um, that episode will give you more context for what he's speaking to today. Our title is Faith Crisis 101. <laughs> yes. And I've taken that from a document actually that you helped create. Dan, uh, can you maybe give us a little background on why you've been involved in faith crisis ministry among Latter-day Saints? I, I went through faith crisis uh, years ago, probably six or seven years ago. Um, it, it was a, a really tough experience. And it, there, as I was kind of emerging from that and seeing light at the end of the tunnel and saying, okay, maybe this is really going to work out. Um, I had a very, uh, specific prompting at one point that the next step, the next phase in healing and growth was going to be, I needed to look outward, mm -hmm. uh, and reach out to others and get out there and start trying to help other people <laughs> instead of devouring more and more books and trying to <laughs> fix all of my concerns and questions and doubts or whatever i needed to look outward and that's why i started reaching out online and joining groups and 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 actually doing you know one-on-one -on -one ministry as well Awesome. Now I have mentioned this group a number of times on this podcast, but Dan is a part of a group on Facebook called Uplift Community of Faith. And it's a great resource for people who are looking to strengthen their faith or who are in the mess of faith crisis. I'll put up a link in the show notes for Uplift. And also this document that we will be discussing today, I will also put a link for that. It's quite extensive and we won't be able to cover every point uh, today, <laughs> but hopefully we can get some of the key points because you've been in the thick of helping people with faith crisis. From your perspective, do you feel like this is something that we're experiencing more and more as a people that faith crisis is becoming more of the norm than an anomaly among Latter-day Saints? I, I think it's becoming more of a norm, not just among us, but also other faith communities as well. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. And and a lot of that has to do with just the explosion of conversation online, people yeah. on social media. It's just so easy 
to have somebody challenge your faith on social media in a way that you don't have an answer for. And, um, and so it's affecting people in a lot of faith communities right now. And I think that's an important point to emphasize that it's not just Latter-day Saints. <laughs> I think we are living in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to faith in general. And if as much as we can normalize the fact that, you know, holding on to our faith is going to require work and not to be surprised when we or a loved one start confronting some of what we discussed today. Part of it has to do with just a larger information explosion. Yeah. You know, if, if you're online, especially during political campaigns, uh, like all the time, we're constantly bombarded with assertions about things and we don't have the time to do, to research and evaluate each one and apply the right methodology and examine sources and, and actually like become an expert in whatever field is necessary. We don't have time. And, you know, this is absolutely applicable to matters of faith as well. We're told things about scripture. We're told things about history. You know, some people, just say, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to a podcast on that issue or whatever, or, or, and then I'll listen to a critical podcast and, and they kind of get into a ping pong match where, oh, I'm going to listen to an apologist and then a critic an apologist and a critic. And some people never get out of that ping pong match. Mm. And <laughs> I want to suggest that there's a much better way than just being caught in an information tornado, you know, in matters mm. of faith. I love that. Thank you. Great point. So to start off this conversation, uh, this might seem like a no-brainer, but I think it's important to define what a faith crisis is. Can you give us a working definition for that, Dan? <laughs> so I'm, I'm glad you asked that because when I charged into faith crisis ministry, it was like, okay, I know what to do. I know what helped me. And I charged in and after, you know, some amount of conversations, I was like, okay, hang on a minute. There are a lot of people who are saying they're in faith crisis, but what they're really experiencing is a different kind of thing. It's mm -hmm. not necessarily a faith crisis. It might be a belonging crisis. It might be uh, a, a maturity crisis or a social crisis or a, you know, any number of these other kinds of things, uh, which is why I've really come to promote the developmental way of thinking about faith crisis that it's it's really helpful to to kind of transition away from <laughs> thinking about uh you know oh i'm in faith crisis because i've lost my faith or whatever to thinking about okay you know i'm i might be experiencing a developmental milestone in my life as, just as a human being and it's affecting my faith um and it's normal. It's not mm -hmm. something to be afraid of or ashamed of in any way. As you talk about, this is normal and this, this is potentially a very good thing. A lot of this conversation, I hope that we can help people reframe what value actually a faith crisis can bring into somebody's life. Now, obviously there are different degrees of faith crisis. But um, I've spoken to Jared Halverson a couple of times on this podcast, and we've talked about, well, I guess it's not so much his idea. It was a 
Bruce Hafen's idea from uh, faith is not blind. This idea that we often start with faith being in this realm of simplicity. And it's kind of like our primary level of faith, right? Everything is very clear cut as we get older and we, we do develop and we experience things that help us see the world in a different way. And then suddenly the world is no longer so black and white. We enter complexity. And then often, as Jared Halverson said, <laughs> sometimes we get stuck in the complexity or if we want to frame it in a different way, he, he said, all of our lives and our, our testimonies will follow a, a story arc of it's just Eden, fall, atonement. And sometimes we get stuck in the fall, in the mess. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, is for those who are listening, if you feel like you're in the midst of this faith crisis, I hope you can start reframing that perhaps you're just in the fall and it's a fortunate fall. <laughs> we had to fall in order to progress. So, yes, I would just encourage any listeners to be open to the idea that there are better ways of reframing it than you might have heard. Uh, some people, the narrative in, in our minds becomes, oh, I've lost my faith because I found out that the church isn't true, right? <laughs> or something like that. Hang on a minute, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. um, what is really happening is you may have found out that people can make arguments against faith and you may not have been exposed to those before. And you may have found out that a lot of issues that pretty simple to you, like scripture is the word of God, well, they have a deep complexity to them as well. They have a simple side and, and a complex side, uh, like we see in the Hafen's model, which I think is fantastic. Um, but that can be a shocking thing to come to understand if you've never understood that before if you've never been if that's not what you've been taught then you know you might hear people say oh you were deceived mm -hmm. or you know or things like that when in fact no i mean every aspect of life we make simple statements that have a a, a dimension of complexity to them that we're not aware of and it's easy to become shocked and disillusioned. And part of our personal growth is just learning that that's a normal part of life. It really is. And you're going to experience it in your faith. You're going to experience it in your relationships, in your schooling, your mm -hmm. career, all mm -hmm. of your commitments. You're going to experience this thing. And it's okay. It's normal. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. Uh, it's just normal human experience. Yeah. Based on your experience working with people who have struggled or in, are in the midst of faith crisis, have you noticed a pattern? Like what types of conditions create fertile ground for a faith crisis? So faith crisis, um, Sometimes we take in assumptions about the way things are. Um, you know, a common one is the idea that prophets are perfect. They never mm -hmm. make any mistakes. Um, or, you know, a common assumption is that we're always supposed to be gleeful and cheery about every church experience <laughs> we have. <laughs> and so, gosh, if I go to church and, and I have a rough Sunday at church or a rough month of Sundays, or even season, you know, of Sundays at church. Um, there's something wrong with me. 
because you know i don't feel like a cheerleader anymore i, I don't feel <laughs> like i'm joyful all the time i'm having a really rough time um again you know we can sometimes assume that if that's the case then oh gosh i'm there's something wrong with me when in fact you know you can reframe all of these things as opportunities for growth there are things for me to learn here these emotions that i'm feeling the frustrations or whatever they're not a good or bad thing they're just they're my reality and that's okay i don't have to fight reality i can acknowledge compassionately with self-compassion say this is my reality and that's okay so again you know these these kind of assumptions that we make uh about the way things are and about the way we're supposed to feel about everything those can kind of poison the ground and mm -hmm. make it hard for us to develop the real thing you know which is a plant with very deep roots that can withstand a lot so hmm. so would it be fair to say that one but one thing that would help us to not fall into faith crisis would be making sure that our expectations are in check and recognizing that there is opposition in all things when lehi taught that in the book of mormon i don't think he said except for a church <laughs> or except for with members of the church. Right. Um, I think that when, when we read in, in scripture that there is opposition in all things, that includes in Zion. And I've said on this podcast, you know, one of the great gifts of being a Latter-day Saint is being among the saints. And one of the great burdens of being a Latter-day Saint is being among the saints. Yes. <laughs> yes. So opposition in all things. And if we can keep our expectations in check and make sure that what we think should be isn't in the way of faith. That's important. Yep. Um, so let's, let's pretend that there's someone listening to this podcast who has entered faith crisis. What are some unhealthy versus healthy ways of framing faith crisis? First, from the perspective of the one who is experiencing it. And second, from the perspective of someone who is observing it. Okay, so first of all, one of the things that breaks my heart every time I see it, and I see it far too often, is when somebody uh, enters this kind of a situation mentally, spiritually, emotionally, where it's like, whoa, I have I feel like I'm in a pit. <laughs> I don't know how if I'm ever going to be able to get out of this. I don't know how or what to believe now, you know. Um, one of the things that breaks my heart is when I talk with somebody in that situation and they say that their parents or somebody around them has been shaming them over it and saying, oh, you're, you know, there's something wrong with you or you're, you've incurred the wrath of God and that's why you're unhappy. You know, honestly, like it's kind of shocking and, and Part of that just has to do with a, a lot of people just don't know how to respond to it. They might have just gone through their whole life approaching faith in one way, and it's the, the way their parents and their community did. They've never seen anything else. And all of a sudden, here's my child who is asking questions that they shouldn't be asking because uh, I don't need to ask them. So why should anybody else need to <laughs> ask them, right? And they can, you know, shame that person and like, and say, oh, 
gosh, you know, you need, you're in need of repentance or something like that. That happens and it's heartbreaking to see it. That's an unhealthy response from an observer is shaming, but it's also an unhealthy response from somebody who's experiencing it is shaming themselves and saying, the, the reason I'm feeling what I'm feeling is because I'm bad. Um, and, and the way I know I'm bad is I look around at all these other people around me at church and look how happy they are and they're smiling and I'm not, and those are good people and I'm not like them anymore. So I must be bad, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and these narratives that we tell ourselves, um, those can be devastating. So they can contribute to that unhealthy response. Another unhealthy response is to panic. And, and I see this sometimes as people will go on a binge of like, oh, I'm, I need to devour, you know, hours and hours of media and look at websites and, and they get into this, like this freak out mode where, oh, here's something I else that I didn't know. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. And what they don't realize is all the things that we, that are being offered to us in media and on websites and and things like that, those are the products of worldviews. They're the products of assumptions and thought processes. And until we can slow down and look at those kinds of things, look at the decisions that people make that uh, cause them to conclude the things that they conclude, until you do that, you know, you're, you're just going to be uh, just thrown about, basically. You're going to be thrashing about in the waves to mm-hmm. use the, I like to use a swimming in the ocean analogy. You're just going to be thrashed around and you won't get into the deeper waters that are slow and still and calm, which is where you want to be, right? Mm-hmm. So for a, an observer, not uh, shaming is really key. Right. I would say that's true across the board when it comes to any challenges that our children or people that we love have, that shaming is probably one of the worst responses that we can give because then we are no longer a person they can trust. And so when they continue to have questions about faith or about whatever might come up in their life, they're not going to come to you. Right. And if we, as parents or as friends of those who struggle can also slow down and stop panicking and recognize, you know what? God is not angry. He doesn't get mad at us for asking questions and that he will stay with them through this process. And we have ample evidence in scripture to show us that God continues to work in the lives of those who struggle. So whether or not they're openly rebellious where they're just asking questions, <laughs> yeah. we, we can trust God in this process. Right. Um, but also you had said for the person who's struggling with faith crisis, it, there tends to be this, this panic. They go on this binge, as you said, yeah. of, of information gathering. And that's actually precisely the opposite thing that we ought to be doing. So Tara, at this point, I would recommend that any of your listeners go back to a different episode of your podcast, the one where you talked with Ty Mansfield about mindfulness. I would recommend anyone who's in panic mode, listen to that episode and start to learn the discipline of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. 
because what it does is it leads you to a better relationship with your own thoughts and feelings. And you can actually really slow down and not be in panic mode. And you can actually look at things. You end up with better emotional resources and you can think about things in, in more creative ways when you're approaching them mindfully. So again, I want to plug that episode. I thought it was a home run. I thought it was really good. <laughs> yeah, Ty had a lot of great things to say in that episode. So not to be redundant, but can you describe some of the, uh, or be more detailed about the unhealthy versus healthy ways of framing a faith crisis where we can actually feel like, you know what, maybe, just maybe this is a part of my progression and it's not such a bad thing. Yeah. So I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, sometimes, so there are things that we do, uh, not just us as Latter-day Saints, but faith communities in general. There are patterns of thinking that we engage in sometimes that are helpful in some ways and unhelpful in other ways. And one of those is to think of ourselves as, as part of a team, right? and have kind of this team spirit where we can do things together we believe the same things we're a community we're we're together and um and we don't want to do anything that would contribute to disunity right and we are and sometimes we can take that to an unhealthy mindset where we get a kind of a superiority complex and we say we are the heroes the world are the villains right mm. we have, how many sunday school lessons have you heard where we talk about the world okay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it it's not that that's entirely false it's that the the problem is sometimes it can get us into an, an us versus them mindset and then you know when somebody uh has some questions that they can't resolve and they start to feel a little more alienated from the community of believers they can be like oh wait a minute now applying that team mentality um i can see that these other people that i'm talking to are really good you know these people who have left the church for example they're kind and compassionate and wonderful so that means the church must be the bad team. Those are the bad people. And mm -hmm. it's just that kind of mental muscle that we unfortunately develop in church sometimes where we divide, okay, here's the good team. Here's the bad team. And we always place ourselves on the good team. Of course, <laughs> it's human nature, but, but you see a lot of this where people are like, all of a sudden they 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 just switch teams basically and now they view all church members as complicit in this great horrible thing whatever you know and um when in fact the reality is there are very very good well-adjusted <laughs> people in the church and out of the church mm -hmm. current members former members never members you right. know? and so <laughs> Uh, to get into that kind of team mindset, what it can really do sometimes is accelerate faith crisis to where like leaving is the only option because, oh my gosh, I found this other team and, and I was always told that they were so horrible and turns out they're, you know, some good people. 
uh, and so the church must be the bad team, right? So, so that's an unhealthy, uh, you might say it's maladaptive to mm. use developmental language, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's not a healthy way of looking at the world in general. Um, we, we do need to talk about bad things that go on in the world and bad things that go on in communities that are, you know, that are against us, that are against what we're trying to do. We, we can have those kinds of conversations, but in a mature way where we're not self-righteous and, and trying to paint everything in terms of here are the good people, here are the bad people. But that's something that I see a lot. And, mm. and it's sad because man, you know, that desire to be on the good team, uh, rather than, you know, coming to know Christ as the objective of your faith, rather than thinking, gosh, I just need to be on the good team and defend the good team. Um, mm. and, and so for a lot of people, when they internalize that kind of mindset and then they leave and they find, oh, there's some really good people out there who don't think that way. Gosh, the church must be bad because that's where I internalized this unhealthy mindset. Hmm. When in fact, you know, there are plenty of people in church who don't think that way, who are very open hearted, who love members, non-members, people of other faiths and, and all of the above. So was there anything else you wanted to say about what are some healthy ways that we could frame a faith crisis? I'll just reiterate developmentally. Think okay. of it in developmental terms. I wish I could go back and tell myself that because now, you know, over time, looking back and learning more about human development and how it works, I can see that I was at a developmental crossroads in my life. And when you're there and, and everybody's going to experience those, you, you have choices to make in the direction of growth or reinforcing and holding to your comfortable ways of approaching life. And it, but if you can think of things in terms of development and also just understand that development is hard and it's, it's painful, growth mm -hmm. always hurts, right? Mm -hmm. Um, then you can actually come to welcome it. You can, again, it takes the shame out of it. it, right. it it's no longer, oh, I discovered the church is not true, which is impossible to discover, by the way. <laughs> you <can't, laughs> or you can't discover that it's not true. You can discover people's views about this or that, right? But uh, if you view it as a developmental thing, then the narrative changes and it becomes, okay, here are some ways that I used to approach questions of faith. Here are some ways that I used to process gospel concepts. Those worked for me up until now, but they're not going to work for me going forward. Going forward, I'm going to need to operate differently. And that's okay. I, I don't know how. I don't know how I'm going to approach things going forward, but I can be open-hearted and I can be led and I can consult with good people. I can pray. I can fast. I can, I, I can love my church experience while I do these hard, hard, even sometimes really painful things that are in the direction of growth. Well, I'm curious, and this is really all very much tied to everything we've been discussing. 
How do worldview and bias impact our ability to to process some of the more ambiguous and you know paradoxical things that we might confront <laughs> in yes. church? Yes. Uh, gosh, another thing that I wish I understood. Worldview is is you know it's everybody has a worldview. I love to point people to the Wikipedia page on worldview because it talks about different kinds of worldviews. There is a Western worldview. There's an Eastern worldview. There, you know, in Eastern societies, in African societies, there are different parts of the world. People have different worldviews. Mm -hmm. It would be a huge mistake to think that ours is the only right worldview or that it's somehow superior to everybody else's. Um, these are just things to be aware of. The ways, the unique ways that we see the world uh there are other ways right and the more we can be aware of that uh as we approach our study and our questioning we have better mental and emotional resources if we have awareness of what we bring to our questioning mm -hmm. and the worldview of our sources um what they bring to their analysis and their conclusions those are important things um but sometimes worldview can actually poison our experiences. I read an article a few years ago where a woman talked about growing up in the 90s and watching romantic comedies, all right? And she said, as a woman, <laughs> I developed, you know, these ideas of exactly how my marriage should be, and my dating and my marriage should be. And then, you know, here I actually enter into a real relationship and, and I didn't realize that I had developed a worldview <laughs> about mm -hmm. stories that, that I told myself about how relationships should be. That's, that's a huge part of our worldview. Um, and, and she realized that not being able to think critically about what she had been consuming in her entertainment, um, it had kind of poisoned her relationship and she had to go back and say okay all right maybe that wasn't reality that i was being told <laughs> in these movies that i loved and and we are all given those kinds of messages right yeah so worldview is a big one and we bring our worldview to church and critics of the church employ their worldviews um every all of us do and so just being aware of that bias is something different but related bias is just ways that we tend to think about things uh, ways we kind of gravitate towards certain patterns of thought right and biases can take different forms they can be like okay i accept something as true if if it's empirically verifiable like if i can see and touch actual physical objects and use my senses to determine something okay then i can believe it's true that's a bias uh toward empiricism and and there are lots of different kinds of biases one that i have come to think is super important is emotional biases like when we when i talk about faith crisis the emotional biases is such a critical discussion there's a, a researcher named jennifer lerner at harvard university and she has done studies on anger 
and what does it do in our thinking in our decision making and her research is fascinating anger is a very very powerful bias when we're angry we cannot process information very well mm. we tend to make snap judgments while we're angry we assume the worst about people we see patterns that don't really exist we see motives that don't really exist and all of this is is very very well documented in her research um we're not even able to like take in the value of things that are communicated to us that's why i say you know if you're angry don't watch general conference and and i say that based on dr Lerner's research like because you will not be able to process it in the way that it's intended it's all going to go into this bonfire of anger and fuel hmm. it hmm. and and you're totally going to miss out on the the intentions of the speakers um anger is a powerful bias now on a positive note so when i was in faith crisis one of the turning point experiences that i just kind of didn't really understand until i dug into dr Lerner's research was i had a really difficult issue with the bible um just a kind of a narrow specific question about a passage in the bible that really frustrated me and I couldn't wrap my mind around it and and reading scholarly material on it, it just made me more frustrated. And I fasted and prayed about it. And I had a very, very clear impression at the end of my fast when I was breaking my fast and I said a prayer asking for the blessing of my fast, right? I had a powerful impression that I needed to go out and do some service in my community. And I was like, that's not the answer that I want. <laughs> that has nothing to do with the Bible, Lord. It has nothing to do with it. I want you to point me to a book to read. I want you to point me to a scholar who has studied this, who has a better answer. Nothing like that. But I decided, okay, I'm just going to do it anyway. And I signed up for a day volunteering with Habitat for Humanity. And I go out there and I'm just hammering nails and fixing up this house for for a needy family in our community and just having this amazing time with other volunteers just helping and it shifted my emotional state hmm. to joy and all of a sudden i you know this downward spiral on this difficult question no longer existed emotionally i was I had a different emotional bias to where it was like, okay, it's all right. If I don't have an answer for this right now, I can move forward and something may come. Right. And, and, and this question no longer dominated my thinking. I wasn't consumed with it anymore. I was able to keep going and keep growing and it was fine, but I, and, I, I didn't understand until I started learning about the power of emotional bias, you know, sometimes God is just going to ask us to do things that change our emotional state to where, okay, now when I study this issue, it's not going to be from a place of despair or panic or anger. And so I'm going to have better resources mentally, intellectually, emotionally, 
and and I can actually take my time, really think it through, and give it the attention that it needs. I love the the idea of worldview and bias and how those impact how we experience things. I was actually just in my recent study in my grad program learning about worldview. Oh, good. And it's really challenging actually to to be able to see ourselves and our worldviews clearly because we're so embedded in them typically. Yeah. So what advice would you give to people in a faith crisis? How, how can they step outside of themselves enough to get a clear picture of what type of worldview they have and how that's impacting their current experience with the church? I would say as you consume information, um, look for two different stories that you're being told. So if you're told a story about church history, for example, um, by a critic of the church and they say, oh, you know, Brigham Young or whoever, uh, they did this and said that and they shouldn't have. And the church isn't true because this person, you know, this this constitutes evidence that the church isn't true. Da, 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 da. Okay, so they're telling you a story, but they're also telling you a meta story about how the world should work, how life should be, how people should be how relationships should be, how God should work, how God should operate in the world, all of those kinds of things. And those are worldview, right? They're not mm -hmm. objective fact. Those are worldview. So look for those different kinds of stories and say, okay, is this, is this, let me separate out the part of this narrative that is telling me how the world should be and why I should be disappointed because the world isn't that way, right? <laughs> when, you, when you can identify that, and you can identify that in movies and music, your entertainment, right? They're all telling us, you should be sad right now because this character is going through this situation. Um, and, well, really, you know, am I being told something that's true or am I being told, <laughs> that the world should work a certain way. And when it doesn't, I should be sad, right? And so separating those kinds of narratives out is is the process of becoming aware of worldview. And it's very, very important. It's so valuable in what we're doing. I was reading, I don't even know where I found this story <laughs> about a fellow who had left a church and I think he transitioned from like evangelical to like Catholic or something, but had formerly been a member of the church. And he talked about an experience he had as a missionary serving in the deep South. And this, this is an example of worldview and how it, it, it can impact faith. Um, so he went into this woman's home. She was very poor and humble. And he said, she had a relationship with Jesus that I didn't have the way that she prayed was it was so personal. And for him, that's something that sparked a faith crisis because he'd been told all his life that, you know, the world, again, that us versus them mentality yes. that they don't have spiritual experiences. We are superior to them. So therefore they don't have a relationship with God. Yeah. And I thought, you know, that's really interesting because again, that's, that's not true. That's not right. doctrine. That is Correct. a worldview that so many people carry within the church. And I hope that we're getting over that as yeah. we're becoming more of a global church, but 
we, we do have to be very, very careful about the worldviews that we carry around and assigning meaning to things that aren't true. Right. <laughs> Correct. And, and for myself, like worldview I carried around for a long time as a young person uh, was people are good or bad. There's yeah. really no in between. Right. And I allude to this all the time. So I apologize. But when my father came forward and told his kids, his family, that he had struggled with sexual addiction for the vast majority of his life. It was a real smack to my faith briefly, because I thought, how can a man who attends church every week and pays his tithing and does his <laughs> teaching yeah. have a sexual addiction? And it, you know, that yeah. didn't equate. Right. So what we have to recognize is that, you know, most of the time things aren't quite what we thought they were when we were kids and a great part of our development as children of God and becoming as he is, is breaking free of these very black and white thought processes. Right. And I'll give you, I'll give you just an mm. example from entertainment. Our family, we went and saw the Marvel movie Shang-Chi um, and we loved it. Uh, I, I, I'm not like that much of a Marvel guy, but we went and we just had a great time. And it shows this Asian American family and they're gathered around a table together and you have multiple generations at the table. For a lot of us white Americans, that is very unusual to have multiple generations living under the same roof and having meals together every day, you know? Mm -hmm. And as we were driving away, I said, okay, let's rewind and let's talk about how that family operated. They have a different worldview about family. And there's, look at the value of that. You know, can you see the goodness in that compared to how we normally operate? Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to teach my daughters to see value in other worldviews as they consume entertainment. There was a slide in the, the, the uh, faith crisis 101 <laughs> that it, were you the, were you the primary yeah. person that created that? Okay. There was a great slide about resources, like how, if we have a question about history or doctrine or X, Y, Z, um, you, you describe the resources that we have at our disposal to help us with that particular issue. Can yes. you tell us more about that and explain what are some of the primary areas where we might bump up against something that's hard and how do we go about working through it with those resources? Okay. So great question. Um, what I, what I want people to do is when you arrive at a question that's difficult, categorize that question properly first, before you do anything, let's determine what kind of a question am I even asking? What field, uh, what category does it fall into? So it, if my question is about whether God is good, because something really tragic happened, and now I don't know whether, I don't know how God could have allowed that, right? That's the problem of evil. Okay, that's, that's a question in what we call theology. It's the study of God, um, God's attributes and how God operates. That's a question of theology. I'm having a hard time at church because uh, I've, I feel betrayed by a friend at church. 
Okay, that's not a question of theology. That's a social question. And that question, so you're going to look at resources that are appropriate to that question and not mix it all up into this big salad where everything's theology, everything's social, everything is, you know, categorize the question and then identify the right expertise. Who is an expert in this? Um, when it comes to questions of theology, we have really, really good resources on theology. Questions, uh, social dynamics. We have tons of great resources on social dynamics. How do you navigate interpersonal challenges at church? Um, other questions like church policies. Um, you know, we have books that kind of detail the evolution of different church policies over time and the reasons why and stuff. The question might be categorized as theology or social dynamics or history or uh, ancient scripture or, you know, once you find the right category, you can identify the right expertise. And then you have choices to make too, because uh, so I read my most of my questions are around scripture. I love the Bible and I read scholars of the Bible who are atheists. And I also read believing scholars. I read, I, I kind of don't care. You know, I, I want to see how they arrive at their conclusions about various different things. And over time I've developed the skill to be able to say, okay, I can see this person's thought process at work. So if an atheist says, something that contradicts my faith, I don't get rattled by it because I can see their thought process, right? Hmm. Um, so those are also decisions to make is, uh, you know, I, I talked with a guy who left the church a while back and he only reads atheist scholars of the Bible. <laughs> I'm like, okay, are you open to reading believing scholars who have arrived at very different conclusions, who have, who have, even better uh, professional training than some of those atheist scholars. And he wasn't, he wasn't open to it. Hmm. Well, I can kind of predict your trajectory if you're not open to reading <laughs> believing scholars. If you're only open to reading atheists, I can predict your trajectory, I, you know, your outcome. So those are all decisions to make. Um, but going back to what we said earlier, I also, you know, I think on that same slide, I, I start with the question, do you have a relationship with Christ? Um, because if not, then you're going to treat all your questions as, okay, I'm evaluating other people's ideas, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's a different mindset than saying, okay, Lord, I know you, you know me. I have a difficult issue to think through, walk me through it. And I'm willing to be patient. I trust you. We'll figure this out, right? You, you can kind of hear the difference in uh, possible outcomes when somebody is able to say that. So that is where we get into these choices of, okay, now I'm in crisis. Do I keep going to church? Do I keep taking the sacrament? Do I spend time with believers? Do I serve? Do I join the ward choir and just enjoy music, right? And sacred mm -hmm. music and just 
beautiful things to where I'm approaching things from a standpoint of joy and regularly experiencing little rays of light in my church experiences. Um, somebody in that situation is going to be is going to have very different mental, emotional, and spiritual resources to engage with all the scholarship and all of those things than somebody who just, you know, disengages from the church and says, I'm not going to church anymore. I'm just going to read whatever and let's see what happens. Right. Anyway. Well, you brought up a really critical point, which I think is at the crux of all of this, which is what is your relationship like with God when you're struggling with faith? And in one of the slides, there was a cool quote from a fellow named Jeffrey Thane. The question should not be what is truth, but who is truth? Yeah. And so maybe expand on that thought a little bit. Why is that question so key as we are navigating faith crisis? Yeah. So that's a powerful question. And it's a great book. Jeff Thane uh, and Ed Gant, they wrote a book called Who is Truth? And they talk about how viewing truth as a set of propositions um, is only one way to think of truth. If you have a relational view of truth where, okay, God is going to lead me to truth. God is going to lead me. I know God. I have a relationship with God. So God is going to lead me to better perceptions of things, better ways of thinking about the information that I'm given, healthier ways of processing data, um, better relationships along the way. Uh, you know, if, if you have a relationship with Christ, then, you know, you can say like, like in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Right. That's a powerful passage in scripture that echoes through the ages. A lot of people, you know, if you have that relationship with Christ, you're not going to be walking around afraid and, you know, just feeling panicky and uh, despairing all the time. So I, I think that's very important. And, and again, we sometimes talk about vertical and horizontal faith. Vertical faith is your relationship with God. Horizontal faith is your relationship with your community. Are you working on both of those as mm -hmm. you work through your questions? And, and for some people, the, the honest and difficult, honest truth is they've never had the vertical component and they arrive at faith crisis and they've never really learned how to receive revelation or, you know, things like that. And, and so it becomes like, okay, it's just a bunch of ideas. I've been, I've gone through my whole life just accepting other people's ideas and now i can't accept them anymore well that's not really a faith crisis right? mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a proposition crisis that's a belief crisis so um anyway uh, i highly recommend that book who is truth it's a, it's it's a game changer for a lot of people in terms of reframing how we think about our questioning well and just a another short uh part of his quote, he said, truth is not a set of abstract ideas, but a living, breathing person who loves us as his children. And I love that so much because it made me think of 
Nephi's response when, you know, he's with the angel and he's experiencing this vision that his father had, and he's being shown all this stuff that he doesn't really understand. (laughs) And the angel's like, so Nephi, do you get this? And he's like, not really, but I know that God loveth his children. Yeah. And I think I was simplifying that a little bit, but I, I feel like oftentimes if we can slow down enough, stop panicking and really try and connect vertically with the divine and, and start reshaping that relationship, then all these other often peripheral issues that we're bumping up against will just fade away. And it doesn't mean that we won't continue to ask questions. Questions are not the problem, right. but oftentimes it's the fact that we have not connected with who truth is. Right. We're too focused on the what One of the things that you described in episode nine, you talked about epistemology and I just felt like that was so helpful in as as a part of the resources that we can have to help us navigate faith crisis. Can you give us just a short summary on epistemology and that round table and how that can help us with Yes. So epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we, how do we arrive at the point where we say, I believe this? Or how do I, how do I feel justified in believing something versus just, you know, I believe something, but I don't really have a reason for it. What, what are the differences between those two? And then what is actual knowledge? Like how, how do I get to a point where I say, I know things. Um, a lot of people have, have voiced in recent years, discomfort with our testimony meetings where people just go up and say, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I think I'm in that camp where I wish that we would make better distinctions and allow people to get up and say, here's what I believe. And I trust this and I have confidence in this. Hmm. I don't know that I can fully say that I know this or that, but I, I want to know it and I, I trust it and I'm, I'm seeking to know. I would love if our testimonies could sound like that more than they do. Hmm. And when I bear my testimony, I always, I kind of make it a point to tell everybody there are some things that I know and there are some things that I trust. There's some things that I just believe because they seem right. But Mm -hmm. I'm not going to claim that I know something (laughs) when I only believe it because it seems right to me, right? So epistemology is basically you know the round table analogy is imagine you have a round table of sources of knowledge okay and those might be scholarship those might be life experiences those might be witness testimony of other people when people say i've seen something i've experienced something they they're offering witness testimony of something right um it might be intuition intuition is a powerful source of knowledge uh, Malcolm Gladwell has a book called Blink, and it's it's a really interesting discussion of the power of intuition. Um, and, exp- you know, I, I mentioned experience, but also tradition. Does tradition sometimes point us to things that are true or valid? And so you kind of, as you're figuring out what you believe and what you what you say you know, you need to kind of invite these sources to the table and they're not all going to be at the table depending on your question right if i'm trying to figure out the boiling point of water which is 212 degrees 
I'm going to invite one voice to the table, and that's the scientific <laughs> method. <laughs> I, I'm not going to invite personal revelation to sit at the round table, right? <laughs> or intuition or anything. No, the scientific method. That's the only seat at the table. Now, um, the question of is God involved in our temple work? Okay. That's where I excuse the scientific method from the table and I invite other voices. I invite witness testimony. I invite personal experience. I invite revelation uh, and intuition and, and all of those kinds of things. And I bring them into discussion with each other at the table. And I look for areas of agreement. And when you have all these voices in agreement, then you have confidence in, in that thing, right? Because mm -hmm. all these voices are in agreement. There are some questions in the gospel where the voices, like, I just can't get them to agree with each other. <laughs> and so, you know, I invite scripture to the table. I invite modern prophets, personal revelation, and all these voices. And when I get them counseling together, I they just kind of argue with each other. <laughs> <laughs> on those questions, I just say, okay, I'm not really sure. Uh, and maybe I'll, over time, I'll get better data uh, to work with. And, you know, I'll be able to, to kind of figure it out. Um, but there are some issues where the consensus is very strong. Okay. Um, my personal experience of God being involved in our missionary work, I saw it on my mission personally. Mm -hmm. So that's the head voice at the table. <laughs> and if you're going to challenge that voice, you had better have something that's superior to my own eyewitness experience. <laughs> and you're not going to have that. I promise. I guarantee you. Right. Um, so, so there are some questions where, you know, it's settled, right. The, I, I don't need to have all these voices constantly arguing, but that's kind of how epistemology works. And, we can be patient and you know if somebody has a question about again like is god involved in our temple work if you don't have an answer to that well talk with people who love the temple say why do you believe god is involved in our temple work read stories of of people's experiences go to the temple um and if you don't if if you're not temple worthy just go sit on the grounds relax soak it in meditate ponder um and just kind of take in the beauty of that atmosphere while you think through these things and let these voices be in council with each other at your epistemic table right you're mm -hmm. doing epistemology um and that is a process that takes a little bit longer than what you might have grown up with which is Hey, I have a question. I'm going to ask my seminary teacher or my dad or my mom, right? Or the bishop. People, bishops get asked all kinds of things that they shouldn't be asked <laughs> because a lot of people Poor just bishops. say, yeah, I, I just need an authority to tell me what I think, what I need to think, and then I'll accept it. And um, again, the more mature way of asking questions is to bring these voices in council and patiently listen and and work through it so epistemology is a big deal it's very important but we all make choices in epistemology okay so my friend who won't read believing bible scholars he's making a choice 
about who sits at his table, right? And that choice has tremendous consequences. If he's, uh, if you know, if I'm only allowing two or three voices and I'm excluding all these others, okay, but that's a choice. Well, I loved that roundtable analogy back yeah. in, in episode nine. I felt like it was really powerful because I, I, I do think that we have a lot more resources at our disposal than we often recognize when we're struggling. So uh, again, I'm going to just put a plug in for this document, this presentation that Dan has put together. I hope that you'll go to the show notes and and look over the slides because there's there's a lot of good stuff there. This might sound very sophisticated to people as we're going through this, but let's be honest. Holding on to faith and developing faith requires a lot of effort. And I believe that's the way God intended it to be. And going back to this idea of opposition in all things, why? Because we are here to learn and grow and to become as God is. And that's, (laughs) that takes some blood and sweat. Yeah. I believe that if we're patient through the process and we're willing, as Dan said, to, to go to these different sources and to entertain the scholarship and the witness testimony and really reflect on our own experience and give that the weight that it ought to be given, then we can come out on the other side of this better and stronger with a deeper, more resilient faith. But that brings me to this question here, because you, you have worked with a lot of people that have dealt with faith crisis, what are some recommendations you might give uh, that can help steal us against (laughs) the potential of falling into a faith crisis? Once again, I would say, learn mindfulness. Go back to Tara's episode with Ty Mansfield. <laughs> Go back. I don't know what number that is, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but it's a it's a mental and emotional discipline that leads to kind of more patient engagement with life in general. That's so valuable in a life of faith. Um, if if you can be if you can develop mindfulness, you can you become, it's definitely a tool that leads to a lot more resilience. You become less brittle, less prone to falling apart and um, more patient with difficult things. And guess what? Difficult things are happening. They always have, and they always will. So um, I, I think it's a very, very, that's the number one thing that I wish if I could go back and talk to my younger self, that's what I would teach myself. You need to start studying mindfulness. You need to start practicing it. And for those that we have stewardship over, you were talking about how you were having a conversation with your daughters about worldview. Like how, how can we help our children be better prepared to navigate some hard issues as they grow? Oh gosh. Number one, by far, by far, is lead them to Christ, okay? Uh, in our lessons, in our, in our discussions at home, we need to talk about Christ. And if we don't know Christ as parents, we are at square one, and that's okay. Don't be ashamed if you're at square one. <laughs> it's okay to be 
you know, in your fifties and sixties and seventies and feel like you're at square one. There's nothing wrong with that. But, um, they, our kids need to have that vertical dimension to their faith, not just about being on the right team, uh, having the truth and all of those kinds of things that we sometimes, you know, those are messages we sometimes give kids because they, they latch onto those. Oh, I, great. I'm on the right team now or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, okay. You know, if you want to give kids messages like that, I, I would hope that the ratio of messages around the reality and the person of Christ and that relationship with Christ, like far and away dwarf any other messages that we're giving our kids. Um, and you know, that, that identity in Christ is, it's just absolutely crucial. It's the number one thing that we can do to help people build resilience and patience and, and like real faith, the real thing. So good, Dan, as you were sharing that, I was just thinking of the, the scripture in second Nephi uh, 25, 26, where it says, and we talk of Christ we rejoice in Christ, we preach of Christ, we prophesy of Christ, and we write according to our prophecies that our children may know to what source they may look for a remission of their sins. And I, I feel like you just hit the nail on the head. It always is going to boil down to Jesus. Yeah. And, and really when we're struggling, if we can turn our face to Christ and try and connect with him, then it's going to be okay. I mean, yeah. it's going to be, it's going to be okay regardless, but I feel like that's always the missing piece when people are really struggling is that vertical piece. Right. And, and I'll just add Tara that Christ is not a teddy bear. Christ, think of Christ as a personal trainer in the gym <laughs> who loves you and is going to give you hugs, but wow, he is going to, you are going to work. <laughs> And, but it's going to be a joyful experience. You know, you're loved throughout everything you need to do. Right. Mm. Um, I think it's, it's a mistake to think of Christ as, as just a source of comfort and validation. Mm. Mm -hmm. He can be that, but man, people who really know Christ, know struggle that that's just a reality. That's something that we really need to convey to everybody. Yeah. Another great point. <laughs> Not a teddy bear, a personal trainer. Yeah. Because how else are we going to become like him? Right. It, I've been thinking a lot more about just the realities of the difficulty of Christ's life. Yeah. And the final week of his life was incredibly painful. Yeah. So if we think we're going to get out of this life without some bumps and bruises, yeah. Especially if we call ourselves disciples right. and we're fooling ourselves, <laughs> right. right? but he'll take us through it one step at a time because he's been there. He's yeah. walked the walk and how grateful I am that he has, he descended below all things so he could help us ascend with him. Yep. Well, thank you so much, Dan. This has been so awesome. And again, for our listeners, I hope please take a look at the show notes. A lot of good stuff there. But uh, before I let you go, Dan, I've got to ask you this final question. Why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? Uh, 
the the reason is I see God at work in the church. And as I live the gospel as given to us by the, the scriptures and our personal revelation and the united voice of the leadership of the church, as I live this, I struggle. It's hard. Sometimes it's frustrating, but there's peace. There's a depth of peace in living the gospel that just doesn't come from other things. Uh, that's just a reality that I experience regularly. Uh, Yeah. You know, I, I could probably give you a bazillion like questions that I've been able to answer over time to my satisfaction or whatever. But at the end of the day, it's the daily experience of peace that keeps me going. I I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Keep up the great work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at Christ underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschristsrpodcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review, that would help us spread the word about Still Rowing. Thanks again for listening.